You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Welcome to 7 at 7, a local poet showcase. I've been looking forward to saying 7 at 7 all day. Um, Such a catchy name and such a wonderful night ahead of us. I'm one of the managers at the Ivy Bookshop up in Mount Washington, and we are delighted to partner with the Pratt for their virtual event series during the pandemic. If you've been here, you've likely seen me or one of my colleagues welcoming you um, and letting you know that we'll be providing books for the event. Um, We're especially delighted to welcome you here tonight for these poets in particular. All of these poets are obviously local to Baltimore and and have had new books during the pandemic, and that's something we really want to celebrate and highlight at the Ivy. Um, We're trying to pay particular attention to people who've continued writing and continued putting work into the world um, that resonates with people during a really difficult year. And so events like these are a perfect way to gather and celebrate um, and uplift one another. And we're really grateful you're here. And once you attend this event and feel so inspired that you wanna keep talking with one another, we encourage you to come and hang out in the back gardens of the Ivy. We have about two and a half acres of reading gardens with picnic tables um, or join one of our in-person events on the back patio or come and browse um, limited capacity inside anytime we're open. So we hope to see you soon. And I will be putting the links uh, to each of these writers books in the chat at the beginning and the end of the event tonight. So you can uh, read further after you feel inspired. So thank you all for being here. I know it's gonna be a wonderful evening and we'll see you soon. Um, Thank you so much, Hannah, and thank you to the Ivy Bookshop, whom we love to partner with. I'm Shailene. I'm from the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and I want to echo Hannah's welcome and thank everyone who is tuning in. We know that we're competing with many other virtual events, Um, but tonight we have a really exciting banquet of poetry to enjoy from seven poets who hail either from Baltimore or from not too far away. Um, And they are Virginia Crawford, E. Joyle Gillespie, Meg Eden, Brian Gilmore, Joseph Harrison, Christine Higgins, and Michael Saltzman. These poets all have recently published books that are fresh and exciting and exemplify the richness of the poetry scene today. The seven poets will read one after another. We're not planning to have a Q&A, but we'd love for you to use either the Zoom chat or the Facebook comments to engage with the poets. So let's get this show started. Our first reader is Virginia Crawford, the author of Questions for Water, published by Apprentice House Press in 2021. Virginia is a longtime teaching artist with the Maryland State Arts Council. She has co-edited two anthologies, Poetry Baltimore, Poems About a City, and Voices Fly, an anthology of exercises and poems from the Maryland State Arts Council Artist in Residence program. She earned degrees in creative writing from 
Emerson College, Boston, and the University of St. Andrews, Scotland. Her book, Touch, appeared in 2013. She writes and lives in Baltimore with her family. The poet Grace Cavalieri said of Questions for Water, this is what I see page after page, an emotional response that calms us, words said thoughtfully made beautiful. So please give a warm virtual welcome to Virginia Crawford. Hello, everybody. I hope you can hear me well. Oh, okay. Yeah, there we go. I'm sorry. Uh, here's my beautiful book cover, Questions for Water. I thought I would read um, four or five poems from you, starting from the very beginning. Uh, the first poem is called Sorting Socks. You're 18, just graduated from high school. In two days, you will leave your childhood, the house you grew up in, the room you arranged and rearranged, me. I'm sorting socks as if my life depends on it. I've taken all your single socks, pulled more from my bottom drawer and spread them black than white, solid colors than patterns, such abundance. I should be optimistic. How easily things become lost. Recently, this memory replays the pair of us, me walking you through the neighborhood, me kissing the top of your head. I'm showing you rose and dog and tree, whispering their Spanish and Italian siblings into your tiny ear, imagining, hoping you, hoping, imagining you creating sets, things that belong together. I find a pair fold one mouth securely over its mate, asks, ask if it's one you want in the suitcase. Yesterday, I threw you a dirty pair you had left in the living room, told you to put it in with the rest, and today I find only one, pale blue with a pattern stitched in, both washer and dryer empty, not behind them or fallen under the sofa, I worry it's a pair you want to take with you. I worry about things finding their mates, finding their way, then their way back. Uh, so that's a poem for my daughter, who is away at college, and um, now a, a poem for my son, who's in high school. And while COVID has obviously been quite horrific and done some terrifying things to the world. Um, this poem is kind of something I appreciate about the pandemic that I have not had to worry about this for a whole year. I actually, I wrote it before the pandemic, but looking back on it, I, I can say I'm, I'm thankful to COVID for not having to worry about this for a whole year. The White Shirt. This morning, my son wore a clean white shirt to school. When I saw it, all I could do was hope it stays white all day. He tells me after the announcement over the intercom, his teacher locked the door, turned off the lights, told everyone to remain seated, silent. My son realized he was closest to the door. 
Without mentioning fear, he explained how he'd planned if someone shot in the door to shield himself with his binder and rush them. He heard the sirens arriving in two large waves, a few minutes between them. The loud reports of what he later learned lockers being slammed shut. Gun. that the police gun was found. I keep thinking of him in that seat, his 14-year-old heart pumping with adrenaline. This morning, I got up early to hug him. I made coffee, asked him to take out the trash, pretending it was just Thursday as he left for he turned and looked me to we often uh, take and recently year and a half or so ago I was returning from Vermont with my son and um, many things from the news kind of all congealed into the these moments driving home, and I, I had to put them into this poem. I actually started writing it on the New Jersey Turnpike. <laughs> Traveling south in a snowstorm. As my son and I leave northern Vermont, everyone saying it will be okay once you're on the highway, even after someone gets stuck at the top of the driveway, even after their rescuer slides into the ditch, I pray no one's coming as we continue up the hill, turn onto the road slushy with snow and ice. Small as I am, I hunch over the wheel, trying to see through crystals multiplying across the windshield. Every few moments, a thin stream of blue fluid, a flash of wipers. I wonder how much fluid there is, how long crystals will try to occupy the windshield. I focus on the tracks made by the car ahead of us. In the graphic novel, my son reads a superhero teleports snow and ice continue to fall on this rural highway to delineate lanes or shows or wheelson and slide stomach hands mind turn into the slide the dashboard indicates it is 26 degrees the windshield crystallizes again i almost give up to fear my desire for our bodies to remain unharmed but i've already reserved a room for the night it is 28 degrees outside I persist at the raging pace of 40 miles an hour. My son sleeps an hour, two. After six hours, snow and ice are rain. In Connecticut, it is 33, then 34 degrees. At breakfast, we each make a waffle, pour the batter, close the irons. Red numbers count down. We face the TV news. American Jews are being attacked. 
European Jews are being attacked. In Australia, there's a town dark two hours after sunrise. Smoke so thick, all is darkness, maybe midnight without stars. In another town, the air appears to be dyed red. There will be no fireworks over most of Australia this New Year's. Then video kangaroos bounding across brown land, each body's singular exertion, the ancient brain commanding all effort and energy toward its intention to survive. Their flight jolts me, seeing these large mammals, the immediacy of desperation, the way we have become far too accepting of the desperation hero asserts Every human being is their own thermodynamic miracle. This truth, a momentary refuge to me, the hero decides to interrupt the annihilation of humanity that has already begun. The illustrations, heaps of bodies, so much blood, a poster advertising the pale rider playing crystal knot. I suck in my breath. We are 50 miles from where last night someone broke into a rabbi's home into the celebration of the seventh night. Wielding a machete, the relative normalcy of the New Jersey Turnpike, access to bathrooms, food, running water, and soap. One second, everyone. Thank you for being patient. Virginia. Oh, sorry about that. Yes. No, that's all good. Um, in the bathrooms, almost always being cleaned by Hispanic women, signs asking, Estas buscas una salida? Are you looking for a way out? Given all these truths, all the confusion and blood and miracles, all the horrors our children are inheriting. I have no idea what to say to my son. I can't say anything. If I open my mouth, all I can do is be there, silent, sad, my hand on my son's shoulder. The other side of the world. When we wake, it is evening there. We smell coffee and move in its direction. They have already done their dinner dishes. We make lists. They count accomplishments. Day is nearly done with them. Kites that might have flown have been flown. Children who learn to walk or crawl or read have done so. Their parents are thrilled and terrified today and for years to come. Dishes that were dropped have shattered and been swept away. Those who were to leave us have done so. Families mourn or will soon. All of us cool as the sun goes down. Birds, fire, or the grave wait for what is left. 
thank you so much for everyone at the Pratt for this event and Hannah at the Ivy as well. I look forward to hearing everyone else. Thank you, Virginia. Um, and our next reader is E. Doyle Gillespie. E. Doyle Gillespie is a Baltimore City police officer, a 15-year veteran of the force. He has worked in patrol operations and education, among other specializations. His books of poetry include Masala, Tea, and Oranges, on the later edition of Sancho Panza, Sakura Prophecy, and Aerial Act. His most recent title is Gentrifying the Plague House, an exploration of our world of social upheaval and pandemic. He is a former teacher who holds a BA in history from George Washington University and a Master of Liberal Arts from Johns Hopkins University. Charles Rommelkamp writes that in Gentrifying the Plague House, Edward Doyle Gillespie covers the whole gamut from creation to destruction, from Brahma to Shiva, his language is alive and his characters memorable. Please help me to welcome E. Joyo Gillespie. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Um, this is my new book, also from Apprentice House Publishing, Gentrifying the Plague House. They did a beautiful job with this. Tremendous. Um, so I want to start off with this piece called To Be Trussed Up and, and Waiting. Um, it came to me just from listening to some conversations and take, doing some travel. And I believe this is my foray into magical realism. <laughs> to be trussed up and waiting. They will slaughter the goat when he comes back from the mountain. They have tethered it to the tree and they drink rum through the passing time as they wait for him to wind his way back down the dirt road. They smoke the tobacco that he gave them before he picked up a twisted branch to use as a walking stick and said that he would be back soon. Just a little walk, then I will come back for the meat. So now that he has met the conquistador who sits forlorn in heavy armor at the foot of the shattered castle and the slave who still limps, from cutting off the cuffs of the day of his, his escape, he comes down and they gather their knives. They will collect the meat, he'll pay them, he has explained, but he must see the severed head. Times are hard here and he wants to know that they have not tried to sell him the carcass of a withered dog from the junkyard on the other side of the road. Um, I'm also interested in families. Um, I think my interest in uh, the dynamics of my family and the growth of families and particularly the secrets of families have been very interesting to me uh, since I found out things about my own family. <laughs> so uh, I've been venturing into discussing the mythologies that families create about themselves. And uh, this is particularly interesting to me because I found out that my family immigrated from Cuba a uh, long time ago, and the details of that are very secret. <laughs> they're very, they're very hidden. So uh, I find myself venturing more and more into the mythologies and the secrets that families keep as their little treasures. 
excluding the coldness of my room and the strange ways of fathers. When I write this, I will say that the house was narrow and that it overflowed with books whose backs were well broken by the hands of old men. I will say that he spoke to me in so many languages that my teachers feared for the sanity of my tongue. In my story, you bickered with him using the immigrant mouths of my grandparents because the things of which you spoke were only the business of adults. I will write that you took me into the cauldron of our kitchen along with my sister and the aunties of your, your coven. Garlic would cleanse, I will say you said, and red wine forgive if you forget to find it the coolest recesses of the house. And I will write that you were working with the crank of an ancient grinder or even a mortar and pestle when you explained to me that paprika could be almost tasteless if done the wrong way. If you do not crush the right pepper in the right way, it would give you its color, maybe a trail of its scent. But when you went to meet it, its flavor would only be a ghost haunting whatever was meant to bring you sustenance. Um, so, as noted, I, uh, I am a Baltimore City police officer. I've spent a lot of time on the streets kind of watching the drama of Baltimore unfold in front of me and being a participant, of course. <laughs> And uh, I've always been fascinated by the art, the brutal and violent and fascinating art that unfolds itself in Baltimore just on a given day um, in often the forgotten recesses of the city. So um, this is called Lilith in Transit. I saw one of Rossetti's stunners on the bus this morning. I'm pretty sure it was Lilith, but don't hold me to that. I mean, she had those cornforth lips and she was brushing her hair, admiring her reflection in the mullions fractured steel, but I could be wrong. I folded my paper, slumped in my seat and watched my commuter Lilith preen her thick red curls as we shuddered past Holiday Street and the old boarded up porno shop. Over her shoulder, I could see the place where Clara used to dance on her pole. And I swear, the blind man on the corner of President in Baltimore, doomsday soothsayer with his all-seeing eye dog, hailed her as we passed. But my Lilith, incendiary in her affliction t-shirt, two rows up, only twisted her hair in those tortoise-shell coils, pursed her lips, and waited for the next stop to arrive. Hmm. See here. So back to the uh, the theme and the question of uh, the origins of family and the origins of self, particularly in the question of the history that we carry whether it's ethnic or racial, geographical. Uh, I, I had to, this, this came to me back in uh, October. 
creation myth in one day. There are Cuban men in the lobby now. They have come in the height of the heat of the day in dark designer suits and open collars. They have come to play chess, teaching leaps and slanted lines to young girlfriends, talking to the Haitian woman who brews the coffee, coolly racing from the cigar shop around the corner to the library chill of this marble hotel. And when the sun is swallowed up, new ones will rise out of the Atlantic, out of the beaches raked sand. They wear the white pants of cane cutters deliberately out at the knee, embracing conga drums with sinewy legs as they sit beside the lobby door. As I ply the Haitian woman for another cup, they thrum the taut hides of their drums and they wail their words because the songs are ancient loves, circles drawn in sand and an ocean full of dancing bones. So let's see, I think we bring us back to Baltimore. Um, again, the, uh, I'm just fascinated by the characters that you meet in Baltimore and the dramas that they play out unabashedly, just beautifully play out on the streets of Baltimore. This is Vixen in the Alley on New Year's Eve. Vixen in the alley on New Year's Eve. To show me what she means, what I must understand, she rises up on one foot, stretches one thigh open and away from its mate, stands Eke Homo in platform heels. She tells me again that she has named herself Vixen and that she is the only white girl at the Diamond Club who has no Baltimore stig stigmata on the hollows of her arms, who does not sleep shuddered eyes with purple lids of she is thick and she is healthy she tells me again she should be the one to dance for me because tonight is the first of the year and she can tell that I have chosen the wrong words for too many times I have accepted far too much smoke that has strangled me I have left far too much shredded green glass in my wake but none of this matters to Vixen in her platform shoes. She will forgive me my trespasses, she says, because this is the first of the year. The horseback cops are traversing in front of Eddie's like a fascist promenade, and she is the one meant to usher me inside. And do one more here. Um, back again to the story of family. Um, the idea that family is never just a set thing with a set culture and a set language that we're always discovering and rediscovering who these people we call our family are and what we can learn from them and who we are because of them. So um, become more and more interested in digging into that. This is called, Much Later, She Will Edit This. If you see the typewriter woman come down, it will be to buy our longanisa and the fried cheese that goes with her wine and our coffee. She said once that she could drink what we brew here, 
what we press here because she learned about coffee from her Damascus father. She was tiny and he gave her sips and spoons as he wrote with his tall script in the margins of a secondhand book or scribbled on the edges of beveled pages. You may see her in men's clothes talking to the cappuccino women that cook here, that carry our kitchen smells and our butane heat home in their skin every night. She came to them on the day that she finally cleaned out her father's apartment. She came with her arms full of an antique underwood and she begged them to speak to her in unbroken torrents of coffee ground Spanish and wax paper cooking oil until her morning time was done and the keys to the new place were properly blessed. It's my offering for this evening. Thank you so much. Thank you to the Pratt. Adore you guys, thank you. Thank you, Ed, that was great. Um, and our next reader is Meg Eden. Meg is a 2020 Pitch Wars mentee and teaches creative writing at Anne Arundel Community College. She is the author of five poetry chapbooks, the novel Post High School Reality Quest, and the poetry collection Drowning in the Floating World, which came out in 2020. Meg runs the MAGFest Mages Library blog, which posts accessible academic articles about video games. And you can find her online at MegEdenBooks.com or on Twitter at, at @confusednarwhal. The poet Elizabeth Arnold wrote about drowning in the floating world, quote, Eden's poems are vivid, poised, and almost as vast as the power of nature they describe in this remarkable collection. Please help me welcome Meg Eden. Thank you so much, Shailene, and thank you so much um, to everyone at the Pratt for having us. This is just lovely. It's not the same as getting to see everyone in person, but um, we're just so grateful to be able to meet any way we can and be able to share a love for poetry. I know that's helped to keep me afloat during these times. Um, so I'll read some poems from my collection, Drowning in the Floating World, um, that Shailene mentioned. Um, it's a collection of poems about 311, um, the great Japan earthquake of 20, um, 2011. And um, I guess the idea of the tsunami, uh, the Fukushima power plant disaster, um, this idea of water, um, as a force of disaster, but also a force of life and a force that is richly used in the Japanese language and mythology. I just became um, haunted by the idea of a disaster and how quickly our news cycle moves on um, and we can forget. Um, and just I couldn't let go. So whenever we can't let go, that's what happens is we end up with a book of poems. So I'll read a few poems from this. I'll start with the um, collect a, a poem called Things to Do in My Hometown, Higashima Tsushima. Become a spirit and wander as a lantern through a nostalgic alleyway. Thrift shop in the ruins of the mall. Make miso out of seaweed from a backyard. Make udon from the debris in the living room. Try to remember friends' names and what they looked like before they were found. Watch the water recede. Watch someone at the top of a hill build what looks like a shed for a dog, 
Imagine living in a dog's house. Imagine being a dog living in a neighbor's house. Make a list of places to move to, go through the house and find what has and has not been affected. Is the milk still good? The natto? Make a map of where all the buildings used to be. Go to the woods to find something living. Go find a fox. Ask how many tails it takes to outsmart disaster. Tell the fox what it means to be a survivor and watch the fox tend to its young. Think about what it's like to be that tsunami, filling the earth, subduing it, to be fruitful and multiply, 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 dominion over fish, birds, and over every living thing that moves about the earth. So for those of you that um, maybe you're familiar with Patricia Smith's collection, Blood Dazzler, um, that's a collection that really inspired me as I thought about how to write about disaster. Um, Patricia Smith's collection is fantastic. I definitely recommend checking it out. It's about Hurricane Katrina and what she does, it's just so incredible. I mean, she's an incredible poet, but one of my favorite things about it is how she uses personification. Um, everything has a voice in this collection. There's poems from the perspective of the Superdome, from Hurricane Katrina herself, from Hurricane Betsy telling Hurricane Katrina how to be a hurricane. Um, she really just views disaster and she views the world around us in such a unique way. And so something that I try to play with with these poems um, was trying to tell stories from different perspectives and see what was happening from different angles. And I'll read a couple of those poems tonight. One of those is called All Summer I Wore, which is the perspective of the ocean itself. All summer I wore dead girls dresses. I wore dresses I found on the shore in now empty homes. I wore the sun, I wore the muddy water that carried my neighbors' bodies. I wore the boat that rose up to become a mountain. I wore the bodies of beach dolphins. I wore washed up Chinese newspapers and Russian bottles. I wore melon crates. I wore a government handout blanket. I wore the unclaimed backpack of an elementary school boy. I wore my great grandmother's lost tablet. I wore the names of classmates etched in my arm. I wore altars to washed away gods. I wore a uniform from another city. I wore the laws of my father. I wore the smile girls are expected to wear. I wore the dead girls whose dresses I stole. I wore the kappa who reaches out of the lake trying to pull me under. I wore a new gospel as my shoes. I wore driftwood and got dressed. For the ocean. So something that really um, shocked me, um, I went to Japan the year of the earthquake, um, I guess just a couple months after everything happened. Um, and I wasn't in the Tohoku region, I was in Tokyo and I was in Fukushima. It's amazing um, to be in a country and um, you know that there is disaster in one place, but where you are, everything's fine. And that's just the world we live in, right? We can be in um, a privileged bubble when things are going wrong somewhere very close to us or not. Um, but it just, um, it was a shock when I was there. 
and it just reminds me how quickly we can move on when something isn't um, immediately affecting us. So I wrote this short poem about that. And honestly, my explanation is longer than the poem, because uh, there you go. That's what we do as writers. In Tokyo, three months after the earthquake, everyone is living their lives normally. Everything is covered in stickers that say, do heart Japan. The air conditioning is off in every building, saving for Tohoku, loving for Tohoku. I drown in my sweat while that gaudy crab looming over the seafood market continues to move his giant claws up and down, narcissist that he is. I'll just read a couple more. Uh, this one was inspired by um, images of haikyo, which is the Japanese word for um, it, it ruins or urban exploration, modern ruins, um, it literally means obsolete hill. And when we look at ruins, when we look at something that's broken, um, we can see the waste, the loss, the despair. But what um, astounded me by these pictures was the life. This was of an abandoned Russian theme park in Niigata, which is um, a whole fascinating story. I recommend um, Googling and checking it out. Um, it's so bizarre. But the place was um, overrun with kutsu vines. So this place that is abandoned and lost and no longer full of people, um, you may think of that as empty in one way, yet there was such incredible life, nature taking over. Um, and I couldn't help but see something spiritual in that. Um, and something hopeful, perhaps. So I wrote this poem, looking at an abandoned Russian theme park in Niigata, Japan. Oh, God of open windows, God of new ruins, God of all things green, God of nine-year-old festering dog food, God of Russian peasant dancer women, God of many phones, God of outdated computers, God of molded woolly mammoth models. God of broken matryoshka dolls, who even feeds the spirit barrow. I just want to thank everyone at the Pratt again for making tonight happen. I'll close on this poem, Town Hall. Um, it's in the voice of a town hall inspired by um, the only standing building in Rikas and Takata after uh, the tsunami. Everything was decimated and flattened, um, but this one town hall dared to stand. Um, despite all that, and uh, the town desired to keep it standing as a memorial, as a sort of tsunami stone to remind us of what's happened, so we can never forget our history. So this poem is called Town Hall. Watching the town resurrect, I remain unfixed, mouth filled with birds. My eyes are dusty and split down the middle, my bowels washed in mud. A car rests in my intestines. The dog in my chest just delivered puppies. I've been given many names, dangerous abunai. Do not enter, haite wa ikemasen. Tsunami, you may have erased my neighbors, but still I remain. I defy you, Tsunami. I defy you, town. I will always remember should you mistakenly forget. Here I stand, a new Tsunami stone. Thanks so much. Thank you, Meg. And our next poet is Brian Gilmore. 
Brian, a Washington, D.C. poet and longtime public interest lawyer, is the author of four collections of poetry. Elvis Presley is alive and well and living in Harlem, Jungle Nights and Soda Fountain Rags, We Didn't Know Any Gangsters, and Come See About Me, Marvin, which received a 2020 Michigan Notable Book Award. He is a Cave Canem Fellow and Cambilio Fellow and twice recipient of a Maryland State Arts Council Individual Artist Award. He currently teaches social justice law at Michigan State University. Estee Schlener wrote, Come See About Me, Marvin, allows the reader to be a passenger in Gilmore's journey as he takes them to find some semblance of home and what an honor it is to be alongside him. Please help me to welcome Brian Gilmore. Thank you. Can you hear me? I guess so. (laughs) Uh, My book is called Come See About Me, Marvin and uh, published by Wayne State Press. And I'm very pleased. It's about really my, my experience in the Midwest and Michigan and uh, you know, kind of a different world for me being from the East Coast, Washington, DC. And uh, it's just a totally different, but I, what I did was I began to think about what Marvin Gaye encountered when he came to the Midwest from DC and settled, eventually settled in Michigan and Detroit and uh, made a career for himself. And that's kind of like what I tried to do as well. So a lot of the poems are called Distant Lover. Of course, that's one of Marvin Gaye's great songs. And this one is called Distant Lover Number Two. And it's a sort of a letter to Marvin. Dear Marvin, come see about me. Long way from home, cold out here. No palm trees, citrus fruit. No 80 degree days or beaches made of sand. And the stores are out of space heaters. My winter soup is just a recipe written on note cards. Alarm rings in the morning, I do not move. Robert Hayden needs to wake his father from his slumber. Lumber is needed though it ain't Sunday. Come see about me, Marvin. Did I tell you I'm lonely? My mother came here once. It was May and still cold. She isn't afraid of anything but the chill crawled up her spine like snakes scarfing for food. My mother always been afraid of snakes. Can't blame this on Harvey Fuqua. Can't blame this on Barry Gordy. Can't blame this on my awful singing voice. If only I could sing, I might feel warmer. Buy me a hip home on Outer Drive in Detroit, get a fire started and invite some singing football players over to make a classic. Come see about me, Marvin. Take me to your old haunts. Take me to LA or Hawaii. Hurry, I'm in trouble, man. I am one of the sensitive people. Need to be wanted, didn't you hear? My lady left me out here in the cold like a deer lost near an interstate. Please come show me the way home. I'm pretty sure I don't know how to get there anymore. This one is called Distant Lover Number One. 
Dear lover, where you once slept, there are books now. Langston Hughes, The Weary Blues, and one about the Kent State shootings, 1970. I don't read the books. They are there to fill the space. I hold hands with the books under the covers, lover. Think of them as I doze off and dream of you so far away. I imagine you there beside me reading in bed like you did once. I remember you saying you would not be gone long. It has been a while, lover. There are lots of books there and looks like many more to come as the space gets larger and larger the longer you are gone, though now I have grown accustomed to sleeping with books. Last night, I began to read a book about how the president once had some students murdered at Kent State University and no one went to jail. I met a woman once who was a roommate of one of the victims, her room at Kent State suddenly empty and quiet like my room is each night. She had nothing to fill up the space. Her roommate dying every day again, telling her she would be back soon. She was going to an anti-war rally. I have books and your promise, lover, that you will return. Lay next to me and read something or do nothing at all, but be here alive and in the big space you created when you departed. Even as I try to pretend, I can replace you with some books. So, I mean, I've been uh, still writing other things. So I'm gonna read a poem here that was written during the pandemic. And this was published by The Sun Magazine. And it's called Mothers of All Pandemics. And it's dedicated to Sean D and Bill. We call our moms. They're in their nineties now. Some don't remember, many do. We are worried sons of mothers mugged by some motherfucker of a germ, going back to the days when our mother's mothers were alive during the pandemic of 1918. We become old and wise when we talk to our mothers, though how we'd rather stop by for gingerbread or potato salad. History is a phone call now. I'm reading Zen and Hope Franklin my mother remembering the love in the old city lodged near three indigenous named waterways, all of the colored people cramped into a tidy, tiny sliver of territory. It was theirs and they loved it despite it all. They had each other like now. The news people barely mentioned that our mothers and mothers' mothers are dying like frogs in the sixth extinction. But we can at least call and talk to our mothers or our mothers' mothers hear sad sagas of cotton thorns and bleeding hands, low pay in endless days, hotter than stove combs, things were cruel and depraved, but we did not give in, even though we were sure we would die. But oh, look how many live to tell those tales, like one day someone must tell this one again and again. I've been writing a lot about uh, uh, DC. I'm from Washington, DC. So then you just reflecting on the history and things like that. So this one is from the uh, spoken word period of the nineties. And this was 
about the about the poetry scene that was going on all over the place. But this is called Spoken Word number 43. Cigarette smoke in the air, thick like Appalachian fog, espresso chugging like this is some cafe in Rome. Where are you, Enzo? Annapolis, the Navy town. Like, ain't that Ernest Borgnine over there smoking a lucky strike? Tim Conway writing haiku cackling in Japanese. Fake beatniks have read too much Burroughs is all I see. Some got dreads dusted with dandruff and are afraid of water. No, no, they don't have rabies. They think they were in the siege of Grenada or lost their legs in Beirut. Life is nothing and nobody really is alive. They've got all the money but want to eat daily from trash cans. Jack Kerouac, you loser. I am gagging on camel smoke and three hour poems because of your confusion. There isn't a person in here who wants to live, except maybe me and some homeless dude who will leave cold cheeseburgers in my car. He is allergic to the smoke worse than me. We grin and bear it because we are searching for Howell. But Howell was written under heavy duress. This is a Civil War reenactment, but Walt Whitman left the place laughing. In a moment, I expect to hear some monk or Fats Navarro. That is when I head for the door. We stagger from the haze. The 50s was way too scary for almost anyone. Assimilators beware, but we aren't assimilating. My name is Don L. Lee, and I am allergic to cigarette smoke. My name is Askia Tere. I like cold cheeseburgers. My name is Sonia Sanchez, and I don't like drink espresso. My name is Allen Ginsberg, and I told you not to go in there. Uh, this is a poem here called District Building, Washington, D.C., A Short History, 1970s. It's dedicated to Maurice Williams. And this is uh, a gazal, one of my best attempts at a gazal. District Building. Richard, the copy man, wore leisure suits. Marion Barry pranced coolly through these halls. Richard was disabled, but it did not hold him back. Mary and Barry work in these halls, treetop tall. Richard printed the laws for city strivers making words. Mary and Barry was there, don't you all recall? I ate lunch with older men who talk sex all the time, but Marion's the one who had us in a thrall. One guy said he was going to live off the minerals in the air. Mary and Barry, radical, walks tall, never will he crawl. Another brother said he had sex with half the women in the building. Mary and Barry, I was sure, would never be small. Muslim radicals would one day take over this place. Mary and Barry, like everyone else, up against the wall. These Muslims say they know Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And Mary and Barry will one day be given, be larger than the Gaul. They killed a young reporter and shot a few others. Mary and Barry got filled with buckshot. He too took a fall. Ethelbert Miller say one day that man will be mayor. If Marion Barry wins, a king we will install. All of this happened just steps from the great mall. Marion Barry as always was ready to answer the call. Richard the copy man wore leisure suits. Marion Barry pranced coolly through these halls. And I will end with one last poem and thank you everyone for uh, coming out and listening. Uh, 
Like I said, my book is about life in the Midwest. And I think this poem right here kind of says a little bit about my personal experience and a little bit about the Midwest. It's called Guns, Bats, and Books. And the epigram is from the Michigan Constitution. Every person has a right to bear arms for the defense of himself and the state. There is a bat in my house. Everyone thinks this is normal. When I call places that eradicate bats from houses, they say they really don't do that. They tell me, open up the doors, windows, wait for it to fly out. It makes no sense. Sort of like all the guns some people have here. More guns than toothbrushes, combs, and bottles of cheap cologne that couldn't get Rudy Valentino a date. Guns loved more than jelly beans at Easter. One guy loved guns so much he rolled into the public library, rifle strapped to his back, and was turned away. Broke his heart. He might as well have been some black person in Georgia in 1930 trying to rent a room for the night. He sued and won. You got a right to carry rifles in the public library now, but you can't eat food in there. They should open a gun shop downstairs where they sell used books. They should close down the computer room and teach gun safety. They should sell ammo and not use books to raise money for library upkeep. They should arrest anyone carrying books concealed under their coats. They should make the librarians teach us how to load. They should turn the whole thing into a 24 hour gun range. There is a bat in my house. I do not know how to get it out. It flew around, landed on some ledge and it is now just lying there like Count Dracula waiting for the sun to set. I can't take any chances. I plan to buy a gun. I'm going to shoot it down right away. If you don't act fast, bats will think they can stay in your house forever. I read that in some book. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. That was great. Okay, our next reader is Joseph Harrison. Joseph is the author of six books of poems, including Someone Else's Name, Identity Theft, Shakespeare's Horse, and most recently, Sometimes I Dream That I Am Not, Walt Whitman. His poetry has been published in numerous journals, such as the New York Review of Books, Parnassus, Raritan, and the Yale Review, and several anthologies, including Best American Poetry, the Library of America's American Religious Poems, and Norton's Leadership, Essential Writings of Our Greatest Thinkers. He is Senior American Editor for the Waywiser Press. The poet Ellen Shapiro describes Joseph Harrison as, quote, one of American poetry's best kept secrets and says, sometimes I dream that I am not Walt Whitman is a, quote, brilliant, entertaining, dark and companionable new book. Please help me to welcome Joseph Harrison. Thank you. Well, thank you all for coming this evening, albeit virtually, and thanks to Shaleen Beyer and the people at the Pratt for inviting me, and thanks to all the other poets for giving such a wonderful reading. Um, I'm going to start with the first poem in the book, which is called River of Song. 
Who said that? Surfacing from sleep, seeing the curtains fringed with light, I hear a music fading. Whose? Part mine, part someone's. Cold and deep, the word flow runs, and dark as night. The dead keep singing. They don't sleep. We wake, diminishing and right. I hear a music playing. Whose? On runs the river, dark and deep, and cold as interstellar night. Mark's Strand. When I came to the end of the dream, there was Mark Strand. We were in a vast hall where the ceiling was too high to see and the light slanted down from above and a cold wind blew. We sat on, the, on a bench in the back. A little ways off, a teacher was teaching a class and she asked him to speak, but he shook his head. He was too tired. Then he turned to me and he said, I don't write anymore. I don't even look at the moon, but I read. Then he smiled. When you read the books you most love for the last time, you see the great works of imagination get better and better. When you come to that passage where arrayed in battalions, with all their flashing armor and flapping banners and bright wings fanning the starlight, the heavenly host throws down its spears. You wonder, although you've read it a hundred times, will it really happen again? And when it does, you are surprised. There were tears in his eyes as he said this. But were they tears of sadness or tears of joy? Or were they just caused by the wind, that cold wind blowing and blowing? Then he was gone and the teacher was gone with her class and the students' voices. And all I could hear in the hall was the sound of the wind. The end was over. The end was over, over long ago. If others survived in isolated places beyond the horizon, we had no way to know. No one remembered names or styles or faces. Perhaps some thoughts occurred, but no one spoke. If travelers passed by, they left no traces. Were someone to tell a story or a joke, no one would even begin to understand. If someone walked out on the ice, it broke. Things happened or didn't happen. Nothing was planned. We moved more slowly when we tried to hurry. It hindered us if someone lent a hand. What little we could see 
was always blurry. All we could hear was silence everywhere. Perhaps we should have worried. We didn't worry. Perhaps we should have cared. We didn't care enough to leave those will-numbing confines, all vacancy and stillness and cold air, where signs meant nothing. Not that there were signs. There was no central point from which to see the emptiness keep forming empty lines that led us back to us. And who were we? There was no we left. Everyone was gone. The only person left was only me. In that white world, I was myself alone, the figure of a man against the snow. The wind droned on, unending, monotone. I liked it there, but that was long ago. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Sometimes I dream that I am not Walt Whitman. Sometimes I dream that I am not Walt Whitman, that I am an engineer or an airplane pilot or a school teacher or a soldier or a traveling salesman, not a poet living his afterlife through his poems. I enjoy those dreams. I enjoy waking to find they were only dreams. Let them say whatever they want. Let them say whatever they want about me on the internet. I'm fine with it. I'm all for communication in an instant. I like the internet, but sometimes it makes me feel like an old man. Then I remember, I am only 199. Returning to the seashore. Returning to the seashore after more than a century. I dally my feet in the waves as I did when a boy. I see the developments, the condominia. Then I do not see them at all. Just the marsh grass and the cattails covering the dunes, the long, low clouds and the dark, rolling shroud of the sea. I hear it is charged against me. I hear it is charged against me that I have become an institution, a monument, a study, an industry with biographers and bibliographers and editorial apparatuses. In my lifetime, I didn't much care about institutions. And now in my afterlife, I care even less. Whatever they say I am, you can be certain I'm not. Please desist with your commentaries and annotations, however well-intended, for they are completely beside the point and always will be. Go walk in the fields and woods. Go walk by the sea at night and look up at the stars. See what I mean? Yes, now you see what I mean. Like a ghost, 
I returned. Like a ghost, I returned to my old house in Camden and tagged along with a tour group, listening to the guide recite details of my life there, some of them true. I saw one more time the room where I slept and wrote. They had my old pen on display. I could almost reach out and touch it. The room where I sat with guests. The kitchen where Mary cooked for me. The room where they laid out my corpse and a thousand people filed past. Who would have thought I had so many friends and admirers? And what did they think they would see? It was just a corpse. The real me had moved on, living and breathing in poems. I am no staid collection of facts and artifacts. I am the waves and the seas of grass. I am the wind in the leaves. Thank you. Thank you so much, Joseph Harrison. Our next poet is Christine Higgins. Christine is the author of Hallow, a full-length collection of poetry published in spring 2020 from Cherry Grove. She was the second place winner in the Poetry Box competition for her chapbook, Hello, Darling, in 2019. She is the co-author of In the Margins, A Conversation in Poetry. Christine has been the recipient of a Maryland State Arts Council Award for both poetry and nonfiction. Her work has appeared in America, Poetry East, Naugatuck River Review, and Windhover, and you can learn more at christinehigginswriter.com. The poet Philip Schultz wrote about Hallow, these are earned, terribly moving, and yes, soulful poems, as large as the heart that made them. Please help me to welcome Christine Higgins. I am here, but I don't, I don't see myself because I tried to get rid of the picture. Can you hear me? We can hear you. Um, Sophia, can we send a prompt to um, Christine to turn on her camera? Yes, I'm in the middle of doing that. Okay, but we can hear you loud and clear, Christine. While we're, um... I'll just get started. I knew that my picture was up there. Okay, start my video. Great. Thank you. Just trying to get... Um... Okay. Perfect. Your video is up and you're good to go. Okay, I don't see myself, but that's okay. Tonight, first of all, I want to say thank you so much to Hannah at the Ivy Bookshop and Shailene at Library. And I'm so enjoying our interpreter. So thank you, too. Um, it's so nice to see. I'm going to begin with a poem that is not in my collection, and then um, I'll, I'll transfer uh, over to that. The first poem is called Sing Me Awake for my daughter, Emily. I put you in poems where you were twirling, singing in the rain, sitting on the glider with your best friend, Rosie, watching the coming thunderstorm darken the sky. It drenches everything when it comes down in thrilling buckets and fills all the holes in the ground. I am lucky to still have your friends. 
Rosie says, you tell people your best friend died, but they can't know what that means. Oh, the closet is full of cartoon drawings, report cards, and blue line tablets. If only we could hear your song again. I fall asleep to you. I wake to you. You are here like a front yard daffodil, yellow and smiling. I am urged on by you, urged to sing about anything. You don't really care. You taught me to hear the rain, soft, spring-like, special. And I'll show you the cover of my book, Hallow, um, which um, was published in 2020. And um, the book is divided into three sections. The first is called What Shelter, What Hope? And I'm going to read the poem uh, where those lines live. Roses, roses, roses. Bright red, the gift of a valentine. Crimson red, a dozen to say, I'm sorry, it won't happen again. Peach roses in the front garden, pricking the one who dares to steal them. Innocence dropping soft pink petals to announce the bride. Tea roses in the wedding bouquet. Confetti roses, white roses surrounded by baby's breath. Rose petals opening, opening, blooming like the vagina at birth. Dark roses, almost black for a dead girl's birthday. Yellow roses blanketing the casket. Red bud roses in the shape of a rosary. We let go of one thing in order to see what else there can be. What hope, what shelter. The priest wears a chasuble embroidered with vines and roses, roses, roses. This poem is for um, my friend Greg. It's called Lesson in Mindfulness. My Jesuit friend went to a monastery in India where he meditated so long, he saw not only the cat sitting on the wall, but also what he called the cat's essence, its life force. My friend taught me these things. When you sit at the red light, tell yourself, I am going to the store to buy tomatoes. Breathe in and out until the light turns green. Breathe. Be like the trees. See how they grow up, stretching into the sky. How they grow down, roots digging into the rich earth. Breathe. When my friend was in India, he chopped vegetables at the monastery. That was his assignment. He's gone now, dead from a defect in his heart. He was born leaving us. He wasn't afraid of death, was always aware it was coming. Breathe. And in the second section of the book, I wrote some poems that I called the Jesus Poems. And they really are just about seeing the goodness in people, a lot of them about folks I've met in Baltimore. Um, this one is called, Jesus Supports the Artistry of the Special Needs. It's art auction night at supported employment, and Jesus is moving about the rooms, smiling hello to parents and friends of the artists. He is round-faced and pot-bellied, so you might mistake him for Buddha, but no matter. Jesus has taken scraps of wood and made frames by hand for the artwork. 
watercolors, cartoon drawings, oil paintings, abstract designs. Next to each piece of work, he has hung a placard with the artist's name, title, and price. In the activity room, there's a small reception with cube cheese and rolled salami. And on the walls are portraits of the Mona Lisa, each one perfect in its imperfection and certain to bring a smile. Soon the guests will sit down and Jesus will follow his itinerary for the showcase of songs and dances as best he can. Suddenly all the performers, encouraged by applause, feel a burst of bravery to get up and sing and sway their backsides just like their favorite performers on TV. James will end by leading everyone in Take Me Out to the Ball Game, and it's like a revival. The swinging and swaying takes the blues away. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, this is another one called How You Can Tell If It's Jesus. If you're the helper type, EMT, nurse, social worker, firefighter, librarian, and someone comes to you needing help to fill out a form, to get warm, to have a wound sutured, to be fed, and the gentle way that the person is with you, the way he or she is so grateful for your help, the way he or she smiles or blesses you or says something about your hair or your glasses just to please you, then you can guess it's Jesus who came to see you. If you go home feeling helped more than having helped and you're more attentive to your children or kind to your spouse or you lie in bed with thoughts of that someone and his hardship, then say your prayers and be glad that Jesus came to see you through today. Because tomorrow, it's back to the one who curses a blue streak, the one who accuses you of being the problem, the one who pockets all the starlight mints. And uh, this is a poem in the last section, which is called Resonant, called Pocketbook. Stolen in the time it takes a shutter to click, swept from the office chair where I left it in a moment of distraction. Nothing important inside except a disposable camera, pictures of my nephew being born, his parents caught in the widening lens ready to turn that moment when life enters the room. And I'll read you the, the um, and this is another one called At the Adolescent Treatment Clinic. A teenage boy swipes an Easter plan from the receptionist's desk. I happen by just as the female custodian a bundle of keys hanging from her belt returns it. What kind of boy, I wonder, covets a hyacinth with its fat milky green stalks and tubular pink petals over other treasures on the desk, like the clock radio or the jar of hot candies? We all sit there admiring the flower in its twirl of polka dotted paper. I feel it overtake me. I wish you could have smelled his room, the custodian says. It smelled just like a mother's love. And the last poem I'm going to read tonight is also a new poem. Um, I, I, um, 
submitted it uh, as um, with a prompt from a prompt that was a you know it was a contest and um, the prompt was to write a collage poem uh, using an article from the newspaper and then um, uh, also combining two previous poems that you have already written. And that was the challenge. And my poem is called Loving Brianna. For those with flat tires and empty houses filled with glassy bags, guns, and piles of cash, I want to share the sun. Fling open the curtains, pink and yellow squares, her post-its brimming with goals and timelines open to the light. Life is a surprise. She said 2020 is going to be my year. First woman other than Oprah to be on the cover of O Magazine. Soft brown curls frame her face. Where is your wish for yellow? Yellow for Scythia wave hello with spindly arms, harbinger of spring. I want to be the first of your family to see my yard of purple tulips. She made cookies that night. They fell asleep to the blue glow of television. You could see it from the outside, looking in. Finish high school, enroll in college, be a role model, keep moving toward change. The innocents call out. Plum trees with black branches and purple flower buds line the highway that leads to hospitals and other institutions. College campuses seem sanctified, even though they're often set in poverty. Magnolia trees blossom. The rich brown dirt is carefully planted with velvet pansies. She had a toothbrush and flat iron at his house. They could have stayed there, but they chose her apartment since her sister was away. City grime and treeless wells filled with flattened soda cans and McDonald's yellow wrappers, yellow and pink squares, move away from danger from the parched dirt where nothing grows. What stays? The sun, the moon, the stars. For those who love her, 2020 will always be her year. How will we change for her? For now, the future has no definition. There is only the sound of her nieces doing their hair and laughing. Thank you so much. I, it was a joy to be here. Thank you, um, Christine. Um, and we have one more reader. Our seventh reader is Michael Saltzman. Michael Saltzman, poet, physician, and art critic, served as chairman of neurosurgery at the University of Maryland and president of the Contemporary Museum and City Lit. Poems appear in Arts and Letters, Cafe Review, Hudson Review, New Letters, and Raritan. Books include The Clock Made of Confetti, The Enemy of Good is Better, his popular anthology, Poetry in Medicine, a Prague Spring Before and After, which won the Sinclair Poetry Prize, and Shades and Graces, New Poems, uh, which came out from Spiten Dival in 2020, 
and won the Daniel Hoffman Legacy Book Prize. Shades and Graces led poet Dee Nursky to say that Saltzman has, quote, crafted a voice whose modulations are seamless. The profundity is natural as daylight. With this book, Saltzman comes into his own. Please help me to welcome our last reader, Michael Saltzman. Thank you so much, Shailene. And uh, thank you to uh, the Ivy and the Pratt Library. Uh, I'm just gonna hold up the cover here of Shades and Graces, uh, which has a beautiful painting on it by the great uh, Afro-Caribbean artist, Frank Bowling. Uh, I'm gonna read five poems that cover many of my major interests uh, for all the poems in all my books. Uh, and in terms of family history, uh, I was born in Pilsen in Czechoslovakia, and had, we had almost 70 immediate relatives who died in the Holocaust. Uh, and so when I came to the States and discovered some others, it was a big deal. Uh, and uh, this poem gave the title to the book. It's called The Three Weisses. Shades and graces come in threes. My cousins and queens were aunt and uncle to me. The first I knew as elderly, rich with sandpapered faces and thin-rimmed glasses they wore like monocles. My first lesson in the upper classes, a tinted portrait above the mantel, where Hetty and Sid and Uncle Carl were posed as kids in white smocks with puffy sleeves, big as their heads, and a favorite spaniel for color. Upstairs, their sentient mother lived in solitary splendor. My father's Aunt Rose, already a hundred when I was five, whose backside routinely greeted me, freshly bathed and powdered, with a faint smell of garlic and uric acid in Queens. Sid's husband I never knew or can't remember, and soon after he died, she moved back in with the other two, and seemed as much a spinster as they ever did eternally wed to brother and sister. Of the past, not a word was spoken. One could never know how Hetty's young heart had been broken, or why Carl, with a smile like Coolidge, never pursued a bride or wore sweaters in summer until the day he died. My wife and I got married more than 50 years ago, about a week after men walked on the moon. Uh, and this poem is called On the Anniversary of the Moon Landing. Forty years ago today, I stood in a sick children's ward, a green paper cap on my head, watching a man take a flickering step off a ladder. Nothing else we've done seems as good. The anchorman exclaiming in childish joy might have been speaking for me three months before, as I stood on the bottom step of a spiral staircase on Bay State Road, watching you descend in bouffant sleeves and a glowing orb of hair, my first look and a lunar landing of another kind. I write these words three days after Cronkite died, and no one's gone back to the moon in decades, the other side dark and barely known. A week after that epical landing, we entered into our own mystery. And voyaging on, I'm still amazed to see you turn 
your face to me. The next uh, poem uh, is about literature and culture and the fact that I could never learn uh, what the word mendacity meant. And so I've tried to rescue it uh, from Tennessee Williams, mendacity. To mend is at the center of it, to make whole the rip in the world by stitching it up with lies. There are never enough for all the rents and hollowness, the empty caverns of unpleasant facts. Menelaus, that ancient king, had need of lies as smooth as Helen's back, his family's adultery, incest, and cannibalism much on his mind, his own wife's faithlessness, and the war. And not just kings, but scribes who wish the world were otherwise and make it so with lies. The next poem is reflective of my interest in visual arts uh, and uh, in the issue of beauty. Uh, and it is called The Cult of Beauty. We came ashore at the end of a narrow strait watching tourists stroll the stony paths of an outdoor museum where 30,000 souls once worshiped and played, coming together in trade or else the Delian games. I sweat a drop or two into the sea. It's noon in beauty's hell and emptiness everywhere. No one born on Delos was less than a god. So gravid women were taken off before making a mess. Even the dead and dying weren't left, but removed to graves offshore before death might spoil Apollo's perfect realm with putrefaction. Only his acolytes dwelled in what they called the brightest spot on earth, an island like a lens, where nothing lives today but the past, its columns and houses in perfect rows, and five stone lions guard the sacred lake in which Apollo rose and his sister's temple sank without a trace. A single column marks her place like a bone her brother threw away. This poem is called Medulloblastoma and that is the name of the commonest malignant brain tumor of children. Uh, I was not a pediatric neurosurgeon. I was a general neurosurgeon for adults. So this poem is called Medulloblastoma. I hear writing a thesis on the deaths of children expressed in poems. Perhaps you haven't seen them die yourself. And if you did, might forego the subject. I'm writing to tell you how the crusts of their scalps become very dry after chemo, and the tiny hairs left behind curl like watch springs. They are the first to know, their eyes glimmering with knowledge. It's useless to tiptoe around their beds, to whisper and tell them lies. Their dying is slow, and they see it from a long way off. And I'm going to uh, close with this poem called The Blizzard about the death of a very good friend. The Blizzard. 
The boughs hang heavy, intermittently striped with little coffins of snow, and great white globules bloom like poisonous carnations. These are not the snows of Pizarro, and I am not the boy who dreamed of riding elegant black carriages across the purple avenues of Paris. This is Baltimore, where the fractured trees look hellish, and we can't open our doors against the wet weight of four-foot drifts and the chill-blame cold that blows. Sometimes it's easier to fly than walk. All night the snow-covered ground unpacks my sleep, its white light flooding off the mounds bursts the blinds. When word comes by phone how you missed a step at the top of the basement stairs and broke your fall with your lovely face. You snapped a rib and collarbone and blooded the brain, but somehow not your wrists, always thin as bracelets. They may find the clot in time, and if you awake, the world will seem new and uncovered, almost as if we were young, not melting away. Thank you so much. Oh, wow. Thank you so much, Michael. Um, and um, I want to invite um, all the poets can turn their cameras on now if they would like to, because we're going to say goodbye. Um, I really hope that everyone who's listening has enjoyed this event as much as I have, because I just this has just been an absolute delight. I feel that all seven of these poets were wonderful to listen to. And I personally am going to be seeking out their new books. And I want to encourage everyone who is tuning in to follow the links that are po were posted in the chat and on Facebook and purchase a copy of these poets' new books um, from the Ivy Bookshop or somewhere. You can also get them elsewhere. But yeah, support poetry and these wonderful poets from our region. Um, so I also want to thank the poets, Virginia Crawford, E. Doyle Gillespie, Meg Eden, Brian Gilmore, Joseph Harrison, Christine Higgins, and Michael Saltzman for doing this event for the library tonight. And I also want to thank the Pratt's great friend, the Ivy Bookshop, and Hannah, and I want to thank our ASL interpreter. And most of all, I want to thank everybody who took time to be with us tonight in the audience. Um, please fill out the program survey, which was posted. If you haven't yet, your feedback helps us to serve you. And have a wonderful rest of your night. Take care and stay safe. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.